begin with a prayer, so let us pray. Father, we thank you for this evening and this chance to gather together. We pray that you would bless our time together, that you would help us put aside the other things we've been thinking about or dealing with today, and that you would open our hearts to whatever you might want to teach us from Lewis's experience and from your word. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to help us to grow deeper in our faith and enable us to follow you more closely. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so did anybody have any idea of what that song was? Those who were on time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, of the Father's love begotten. Good. When do you usually hear that? Yes. Often at lessons and carols. Uh, does anyone have any idea of what century that hymn dates from? Yep, that's really old. Yes. Before what? Yeah, it's before the 6th century, actually. Um, so, 5th or 6th century. And uh, one of the things about that particular hymn is that it is talking about a particular event. So what's the particular event that that hymn is talking about? Incarnation, yes! Good job! Oh, I didn't think anyone would get that word. Yay. All right, we can all go home now. Uh, No, incarnation. And the reason that that's such an important word is there was a lot of confusion and heresy that was running around in the early church, the Arian heresy that had to do with the whole idea of the incarnation and whether Jesus was co-eternal with the Father or whether he was created later. And so in that hymn, Of the Father's Love Begotten, um, the hymn writer, uh, who I believe is Prudentius, who's the author of those words, was drawing on the work of a very famous theologian who wrote, his most famous work was called De Incarnatione, On the Incarnation. Does anybody know who the author was? On the Incarnation, the translation of which was published with a preface by a certain author by the name of C.S. Lewis, a copy of which preface you got if you were here on the first or second class that is usually now entitled On Reading Old Books, Uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation. So today actually is the feast day of St. Athanasius. Um, Lewis was a huge fan of Athanasius, uh, which is why he wrote the preface for that particular book. And I love the feast of St. Athanasius because that is the, uh, it is the fourth anniversary of my ordination to the priesthood today because I was ordained on the feast of St. Athanasius. So it's very nice that there are all of these parts of that coming together. 
So Lewis was a big believer in the incarnation, not only Athanasius's work, but on the idea of the incarnation as being absolutely central to understanding what Christianity is all about. Yes. Um, yes, yes, it's it's related but different. So there's sort of two sides of the same point. But this idea of incarnation, hugely, hugely, hugely important in Lewis's work, and that is part of the reason that he was so concerned about education and problems with education. Because if you take the incarnation seriously of God entering into our world, God entering into his creation to bring truth and salvation and all of that, to have an educational framework that totally ignores what is the greatest event in human history, there's something fundamentally flawed with that. So we're going to uh, do another one of these bird's eye views with the bird flying very fast um, about Lewis's views on education. Lewis is very very opinionated about education. Uh, he had a lot of really bad educational experiences, as we talked about, uh, with schools with headmasters that were taken away to insane asylums and you know, various things like that. So he knew a little bit whereof he spoke. But he also had seen how a determined group of people who are Christians can step into the academic world and completely change things. And there's a terrific book that is called The Fellowship that's an academic book that was written by two professors at Smith College, which is not a bastion of conservatism. Um, Smith College, one of the seven sisters in the Northeast, very, very liberal school. But these scholars coming out of there were talking about Lewis and Tolkien and the work of the Inklings and utterly transforming the syllabus for the study of English and English literature, uh, and that syllabus that they changed, which meant starting studying English with Beowulf and Paradise Lost, that syllabus is what most schools, even today, are still using. So it's just interesting. But Lewis wrote two really wonderful books about education and the problems with their education system. One called The Abolition of Man, which we talked a lot about last week, uh, and there's a handout in your email from last week if you weren't here that's a little summary of that. That's kind of a philosophical essay. He said that he was going to take those same points and express them in a fictional setting, and he does that in That Hideous Strength, which is the last book of the Space Trilogy. And it is a remarkable book. Um, that is possibly my favorite book by C.S. Lewis. A lot of people, that hideous strength. Uh, I think it's just a brilliant book on a lot of levels. So I'm just going to run through this. This is what we did last week. But Lewis talks a lot about the fact that uh, education is really about irrigating deserts these days, that the, the mind of the student um, has been emptied of any kind of framework of truth or knowledge, really. Uh, and that part of the problem is that if education goes, if the education system goes, 
all of Western civilization goes with it. Because if you forget who you are, then you are pretty much doomed. Not to depress you or anything. So, and we're going we're to talk some more about this, this idea that you'll see in this uh, fourth bullet. The classical view of education was that it was to train people to love goodness and to hate evil, to live lives of meaning and purpose, to become good and wise in all spheres of life, not simply to acquire knowledge and skills. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But he also was very strong on this idea of how important it is to avoid chronological snobbery. And that is the great disease of our culture, which is that we are smarter, brighter, more technologically adept, and superior in every way to any generation that came before us. And because we are so good, why would we want to pay any attention to anything that those old people wrote? So that's part of the reason, and if you have children in school, or if you've had children in school over the past 20 years, you'll notice that all of the reading lists have been utterly jettisoned. The reading lists that most people read for the past 150 or 200 years, all of those things are gone. Um, no one reads any of those anymore, and everything has been replaced by modern literature. So we'll get to that in a minute, too. But part of the reason Lou says you really ought to avoid chronological snobbery is you can come up with some really boneheaded ideas. And one of the ones that he brings up is the whole idea of eugenics. And when we talk about eugenics today, most of us immediately think of Nazi Germany. But what we don't realize is that in the 19-teens and 20s, eugenics was a highly respectable, academically oriented discipline that all of the best scholars embraced on both sides of the Atlantic. And it was only when the Nazis took exactly the same philosophy and actually implemented it that people realized, oh, maybe there's a problem here. <laughs> so Lewis says when you have this chronological snobbery, you divorce yourself from any framework of truth or right or wrong. And when you do that, all sorts of terrible things result. And then the last thing about deep church is this idea that the historical mainstream of Christianity, out of which almost every major movement of true progress, and I use that word carefully because he doesn't like the word progress, but true progress, like William Wilberforce, uh, people of that ilk, William Wilberforce, of course, being the great advocate who caused Britain to abolish the slave trade, um, proceeding right out of his Christian convictions. That, that that attachment to the church is the only way that true progress can actually happen. That anything that masquerades as progress that's divorced from the mainstream of Christian thought can be dangerous. Alright, so men without chests. This is the first part of the abolition of man. There's a great C.S. Lewis doodle on this. Um, some of you might remember the YouTube channel C.S. Lewis Doodle. I commend it to you particularly for these things that are maybe a little harder to understand. The evolution of man is not the easiest thing that Lewis ever wrote. But the doodle will help you understand. But the men without chest idea takes off 
from this idea that we talked about last week of these two men, one of whom was Coleridge, uh, looking at a waterfall, coming through the woods, hearing this water rounding the bend, and then seeing this huge cataract waterfall, utterly gorgeous, cold, fresh, all of that, and then saying it's sublime. And what happened in this book that was written for high school English students that Lewis uses to um, make his case about what's happening in the education system. In that book, they said, well, Coleridge was wrong to say that, that waterfall was sublime. Coleridge only had feelings that the waterfall was sublime because there is no standard of beauty or truth or goodness. It is up to the individual to decide what he or she thinks or feels is beautiful. So that, of course, flies in the face of all of the tradition of the Western world. And Lewis said, if this idea, let me see the little numeral one there, by virtue of instruction and emotivism, or the view that all sentences expressing values are about the emotional state of the speaker and not about anything objective in the waterfall, that all such statements are unimportant, that all values are subjective, relative, and trivial. <clears throat> Basically what happens if you make everything subjective, all that you have left is power. And those of you that were here last week remember that I wind you all up from tallest to shortest and said, pretend you're in a college class, and the people at the tall end, I say, because I'm the professor and I have control, if you're tall, you're going to make an A in And if you're short, you fail. And of course, everyone that immediately said, except for the tall people, that's not fair. And my response to that is, well, what's the standard for fair? Because this is my classroom, I'm the professor, and it is up to me to decide. And so there, when there is no standard, the only thing that's left is power. And that's why Lewis is so very worried about this, because he says that it's the setup for tyranny, that as soon as you have thrown out any kind of objective standard about anything, power becomes the only game in town. So... This is a little uh, text from the AP English Curriculum Guide. In case you are not aware, the AP Curriculum has virtually taken over um, U.S. high schools. Uh, it is what you are encouraged to take if you want to get into a good college. Um, it used to be just seniors took AP courses, now you start in ninth grade. It is a de facto national curriculum. And Look at what this says. We used to privilege the text over the reader, i.e., we believed that the text said and meant what it said. That may seem really obvious, <laughs> but just hold on. We used to privilege the text over the reader, but now we know that objectivity and factuality are questionable. Thus, we try to teach the students to find their own reality in the text. 
We hope they will find values to guide them through a mad, mad world. That is about 15 years old. So you can only imagine where it is now. And last week we talked about, there was a huge uproar that actually made the newspapers about the AP US history curriculum because about five years ago, they completely revised it uh, and it had been going in a downhill direction, but they really went off the beacon. They took out all the founding fathers. They took out the founding fathers because they are evil men, because they were slaveholders. They also took out anything that said America was a good country because America was founded on genocide. And you should be ashamed to be an American. So that's essentially the philosophical construct for APUS history. Well, they got a lot of pushback about that. So they came back and they did a little window dressing to make it sound better, but it really is still, they put the founding fathers back in there, but uh, they removed a lot of the narratives about freedom, all of the stuff about John Locke and the rights of men and all of those kinds of things. That whole framework is just gone. Foundations of Western civilization, which you used to have to take graduate from college, that is gone. That is an evil force because of that dead white man. You, you cannot take that force. So, I mean, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but not, not, not much. Not much. But that's gone. Civics, you used to have to take civics. Civics is gone. So all of these things are just gone. And the question is, what has replaced them? So and there's this great quote that I love from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone uh, from Lord Voldemort. In case you haven't read Harry Potter, Voldemort is the ultimate villain. Evil is the, the representation of Satan in those books. And Voldemort says, there is no good and evil. There is only power, and those two weak to seek it. And that is the logical outcome of what Lewis is talking about in the abolition of man. So, I want to look through a couple of lenses at what Lewis has to say about education. I think some of his most stunning and insightful work about education is in the Chronicles of Narnia. And you probably, when you read it as a child, this just went right over your head. But I, I'm just going to read this aloud. Uh, this is from the beginning of uh, the Silver Chair. There was a boy called Eustace Cleric Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace attended a progressive school called Experiment <laughs> The people who ran it had the idea that boys and girls should be allowed to do what they liked. All sorts of things, horrid things, went on, which at an ordinary school would have been found out and stopped in half a term. But at this school, they weren't. Or even if they were, the people who did them were not expelled or punished. The head said they were interesting psychological cases and sent for them and talked to them for hours. Owing to the curious methods of teaching and experiment house, 
One did not learn much French or maths or Latin or things of that sort, but one did learn about getting away quickly when they were looking for one. They are the bullies in the school. Bibles were not encouraged at experiments. So you can glean from that some of Lewis's opinions about education. And you can see that he is not a fan of this progressive. And it's interesting, remember, this is written almost a hundred years ago. But how relevant is it still? You know, it's, it's just very, very interesting. And Lewis was appalled by the idea that you would let 13 and 14 year olds make decisions that affected the course of their life. He really believed that it is the job of the older generation to train up the younger generation in the way that they should go, lest they depart from it. I don't know where he got that idea. Uh, but he, yes, exactly. So Lewis was just appalled by this and thought that it was like somebody taking the fabric of Western civilization and just ripping at it. And he was right. And one of the scary things is how very prophetic he was in this. Yeah. Brian, wasn't Jane, I don't want to say this on my record here, but wasn't she teaching in things like Oh, yeah. So when my wife was teaching at a school, which I'll name nameless, it's in the Charleston area, um, she had this child, this is a nursery school, she had this child, and the child was just a holy terror in the classroom. And Jane told her no after she had slapped and bitten another child, and then isolated her, not in a corner, but just put her in a desk that was over... Well, the parents called the administrator of the school and then had a meeting. So Jane went to the meeting and basically the parents said, you may not say no to Our daughter needs to be able to express herself. And when you say no to her, that limits her potentiality. And this is like with a four-year-old. So, but there are a lot of people that believe that. They believe that. <laughs> All right, so that was, that was from the silver chair, and it's the idea that this progress and progressive education is actually something that's very dangerous, and that you don't learn anything other than how to be cruel to others. And power, again, becomes the only game in town. So one of the things you're going to notice is Lewis's ideas about education are deeply related to his ideas about politics. And Lewis avoided talking about politics very much, but he is interested in the preservation of the possibility of living out the Christian faith. That's his um, most important thing for uh, looking at what form of government. And he was very worried that these trends, if they continued, would lead to making it impossible to practice Christianity. So this particular uh, excerpt is from That Hideous Strength. Has anybody in here read That Hideous Strength? Okay, good. Um, I encourage you to read it. Uh, it is scary how prophetic it is. But in this book, 
there's a group of ultra-liberal college faculty, um, ultra-liberal college faculty, and they decide that they want to, through um, government research funding, <laughs> set up a special institute that is designed to help make the world a better place. That's called the NICE. The NICE. The National Institute for Cooperative Education. And no one quite knows what the NICE does, but it has a lot of people coming in out, a lot of smart people. But there, there are a couple of things that Lewis kind of lets you in on that they're doing. One is that they are devaluing language so that no one understands what language means anymore. So people get up and start saying sentences composed of like eight different very long words that don't make any sense. But because these are the people from the nice, everyone goes, hmm, this must be really brilliant. And so there's this undermining of language. There also are these experiments going on, mind control, um, taking over everyone's data, basically, so that everything about your life is known to this nice. And then they, they use that um, to blackmail people and to do what they want. So it's really, really, really scary. And so, and part of their aim is to take over all of the schools. They want to take over all of the schools and have this compulsory education scheme, but they also want to augment that with biological and medical schemes for mind control, okay? So it's a little frightening. So one of the leaders of NICE says this, man has got to take charge of man. Then real education, including prenatal education, by real education, I mean one that has no take-it-or-leave-it nonsense. A real education makes the patient what it wants, infallible, whatever he or his parents try to do about it. Of course, it'll have to be mainly psychological at first, but we'll get on to biochemical conditioning in the end and direct manipulation of the brain. So he talks about that, and then he talks about they have this huge propaganda arm that does all this publishing and works through all of the news media, and all the news media that appear to be independent actually are now being controlled behind the scenes by this one organization. So, and he says, and the, the dialogue here, we're missing half of the first part of the dialogue, is one of the other researchers at the NICE saying, well, people are intelligent, they're not going to be headwinked by all this propaganda that you're putting out there. And so the response is, why you fool, it is the educated reader who can be dull. And if you don't have that word dull, um, basically tricked into believing something. All our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted that they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles. He's our problem. We have to recondition him. But the educated public, the people who read the highbrow weeklies, don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. And so it's sort of this idea that people so want to be, remember way back to the inner ring essay, people so want to be thought of as being progressive and modern and intellectual and tolerant that they will embrace any nonsense, whatever, 
if it's proposed to them in a highbrow kind of way. So uh, these are a couple of quotations from Lewis uh, that also give you a little insight into some of his thinking about education. And the first one uh, is in that wonderful scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy has gone into the wardrobe, she's gone to Narnia, she's met Mr. Tumnus, and then she's come back and she tells them all about it, and they're like, you are crazy. <laughs> and she insists on it. There's a big family scene and all that. And they wake up the old professor that they're living with, and the old professor says, what is going on? And they, the children, Peter and Susan, the two older ones, come to him and say, it's our sister, Lucy. We think that she's gone mad. And the professor's like, really? She's been mad for a long time. And they're like, well, no. Well, why do you think she's mad? Well, she talks about going through the wardrobe and coming out in a wood where there's snow. And it just kind of goes on and on. And they basically say, that's logically impossible. And then the old professor says, logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. And we could really spend the rest of class just on this one quotation, because our culture is in full flight away from the idea of logic. Uh, logic just doesn't enter into things, and most people today have never taken a course on logic, and so they don't know anything about it, so they have no standard, no framework to be able to judge whether something is logical or not. And this is part of the problem with this extreme polarization that we have in our country right now, is that because logic has gone out the window, uh, it makes it very hard to have civil discourse with people. It used to be that when everybody sort of agreed on what the rules of logic were, you could agree to disagree about those. That's very difficult when logic goes out the window because one of the main logical fallacies, how many people in here actually studied a course in logic? Okay, well, that's good. That's better than nobody. Um, you'll probably remember when you study logic, in addition to studying about syllogisms and if-then propositions and all that, you also study the logical fallacies. And one of the greatest logical fallacies is what is called the ad hominem argument. And basically, what that means, and I'll use Juliana as my guinea pig since I'm such a word is not here tonight. Um, basically, the ad hominem argument would be if Joanna and I are disagreeing about something, let's just say we are going to disagree about offshore drilling, okay? So we're going to disagree about that. And she makes some statement backed up by scientific facts, and I just look at her, and then I say to the rest of you, she's stupid. She's stupid. She went to a bad school. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Her mother wears army boots. You know, it's basically, that's an ad hominem argument. Am I attacking her ideas about offshore drilling? No, I'm attacking her personally. 
And it used to be that in political discourse, that was sort of frowned upon. There's always been an element of it in American politics, but it's never been the only and overwhelming element. But I would encourage you, if you haven't watched some news broadcasts lately, no matter whether it's um, CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, just look at how they treat anybody that disagrees with their point of view. What about the, what was it, the uh, publishers? Oh right, yeah, that's that's so horrible. I don't even want to talk about it. But it's it's exactly that point. It's exactly that point of when you throw logic out, you really have thrown out a major part of the framework that enables a civil society to hold together. So then the second thing, uh, when they're in the last battle uh, and they get into Aslan's country and they discover that what they have seen before in Narnia is just a shadow of the beauty of the real thing. You might remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Plato's allegory of the cave and the idea of just the shadows and how the reality of the sun and the real world <coughs> is so glorious. But if you've only lived in the shadows and then the person comes back in and says, wait, wait, behind you there's like the sun. And they'll say, that person's crazy. Well, in the last battle, they go in and they see Narnia, that's the Aslan's country Narnia, is more beautiful, more real, more incredible in every way than anything they could ever have imagined. And they just don't understand it. And uh, one of the characters says something about types of shadows, and you're basically like, who? <laughs> and the professor, again, says, it's all in Plato, it's all in Plato, bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? <laughs> and it used to be that if you were educated in the Western world, you studied Plato. You studied Aristotle, you studied Plato, you probably studied some of the Greek uh, playwrights, uh, but you certainly would have read Plato's Republic, you would have read Homer, um, you would have read all of those things. You were not considered an educated person if you had not studied those things. And that held up until probably the 1960s. And then it started eroding. And now, probably 90% or higher than that of people graduating from high school have never even heard of Facebook. So, yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because they did not, they, they got all the Soviet propaganda put on them, and they realized that what they had that was their core before that got put on them was valuable. So they kind of thrown it out in the way that a lot of the West does. Yeah, that's exactly right. But this whole idea about Plato, Plato and the Greek philosophers are hugely important in the underpinnings of Western civilization. They're hugely important in thinking about the meaning and purpose of life and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so um, I think this is a very apt quotation. Education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make man a more clever devil. 
and we're going to get to more about that in a minute. And then the basic proposal of the new education is to be that dunces and idlers must not be made to feel inferior to intelligent and industrious peoples. That would be undemocratic. The greatest service we can do to education today is to teach fewer subjects. No one has time to do more than a very few things well before he's 20. When we force a boy or a girl to be a mediocrity in a dozen subjects, we destroy his standards, perhaps for life. Now, this basic proposal quote, um, don't think there that Lewis is being as uncharitable as that sounds. Basically, what he's saying is that it's wrong in an education system to say that because the lowest common denominator can't understand this material, we're not going to teach it anymore. It's sort of the same theory that if you applied it to the sports world, and that's a whole other thing, I'd love to hear what Lewis would say about <laughs> professional sports, but in any event, um, it would be the same thing as saying if there are some people on a sports team of adults that are only at a junior high level of competency in that sport, that is all the competency that we're going to allow on this team. It's basically stopping people from being able to use their gifts. And what Lewis says is part of the problem is when you come to a one-size-fits-all education system, you have backed yourself into a corner because you try to put people who may be very gifted in other ways. They might be great craftsmen or great artists or great mechanics or whatever it might be. Um, you put them on a track where they, they're having to learn the same things that people that are very intellectually gifted have to learn, and that doesn't work. And so the response has been, rather than to try to help those people follow their gifts and passions, is to just dumb down the whole system. So he said that is really, really a problem. And then this idea of adding subject after subject after subject after subject is really a problem. Because the whole purpose of education, Lewis would say, has been completely undermined in the past 50 years. So this is probably, I think, the most important quotation. I wanted to give you this whole article, but it's 30 pages long, and it's really dense. So if, you, if you're scuba diving, you can find this online, um, our English syllabus. But just listen to this quotation. Lewis contrasts liberal arts education with what he calls vocational training, the sort that prepares one for employment. Such training, he writes, aims at making not a good man, but a good banker, a good electrician, or a good surgeon. Lewis does admit the importance of such training, for we cannot do without bankers and electricians and surgeons. But the danger, as he sees it, is the pursuit of training at the expense of education. If education is beaten by training, civilization dies. Now that should scare you, because even the best schools in this country have lurched toward training and away from a classical understanding of education. One of the great tragedies of all of this is that it used to be that we believed you could be an educated person and live a life of meaning and purpose no matter what your daytime job might be. So you have that, there are some wonderful quotations from Martin Luther King Jr. about this, about being a 
street sweeper if you do, is a street sweeper for the glory of God. And that it's your status doesn't have anything to do with your job. It's all about your soul, your understanding of the meaning and purpose of life. And the purpose of education was not to fit you for a job, but to prepare you to be a person who can pass on not only the Christian faith, but the values of our civilization and the historic elements of what it means to be a good human being, to pass that on to the next generation. The purpose of education was not to prepare you for a job. What used to happen is that you would be studying whatever you might have studied in school, and then you would get hired, and when you got hired for something, very often they would then train you to do what needed to be done in that particular business. And other things where you would be trained would be in graduate school. But undergraduate school was designed, undergraduate liberal arts designed force you to take a whole broad range of things. Now contrast that, I'm sorry for picking on Clemson here, but contrast that with Clemson where you have to declare your major and enroll in the school that relates to the kind of job that you want when you enter as a freshman. And that is not unusual. And if you talk to people that are involved in curriculum discussions in middle schools and high schools, you will very soon learn that things like Latin and French um, that used to be foundational for any good school um, are being abolished. And they're very often being replaced by Chinese. And the reason they're being replaced by Chinese it's not that someone thought, oh, it would be really great to develop an understanding of the Chinese culture and to understand Chinese literature and a different way of thinking. It is this misguided idea that we're going to teach children to speak Chinese because China is a big economic power and they're going to be able to give you business in China because they learn Chinese in school. Well, if you, I used to do business in China, and I will tell you, the idea that any American is going to learn Chinese well enough to do business in China <laughs> is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And all the people making these decisions have never been to China. They've never done business. They don't know anything about what they're talking about. But they're destroying the framework of the educational system for this pragmatic, training, vocational-oriented view. And the problem with that is that when you pull out all of the discussion about meaning and purpose and what life is about, you end up with people that are in despair, especially if they don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are in despair. And we wonder why people are in despair. We wonder why there are so many 30-year-olds that are living in their parents' basement playing video games. And Part of it is because they have not ever been taught anything about what it means to lead a life of meaning and purpose. They've been taught that if you get the right job skills, then you're going to have a great life. But the problem is, that's not the way God made us. We're not automatons. So, Lewis says the problem with this is that if you move fully to that extreme, civilization dies. 
because all of the understanding of what meaning and purpose means was gone. No one knows it anymore. And you might remember in the Chronicles of Narnia and Prince Caspian, there's just a brilliant explanation of this. And what's happened in Prince Caspian is that the Narnians have been conquered by the Archimelians. And so there is a king of Narnia who isn't really a Narnian. He's an invading evil power kind of person. So he is in charge. And fortunately, they had one king that was pretty good. But then his brother, who was power hungry, killed him and was acting as the regent for the young prince. And the regent was enacting all kinds of horrible laws, said that Narnia was a myth, that the whole idea of Aslan was a myth, that the whole talking beast idea was a myth. And it was outlawed to talk about that in schools anymore because that was a myth and it was unhelpful and we needed to be progressive. So meanwhile, the prince has a tutor and his tutor is a Narnian in disguise. And so he teaches Caspian all about the truth about Narnia and Aslan and the talking beast and all of that. And this fire of wonder grows in his heart and he wants to know Aslan. He wants to meet the beasts and all of that. But he's still not entirely sure whether it's completely true, but it's a much more satisfying narrative than what he's being fed by all of the cruelty and oppression that he sees in the palace. Well, then his uncle decides once he has, the regent has a baby. And so he's like, well, I need to get the prince out of the way. So he sets out to slaughter Caspian. Caspian's tutor sends him away with the horn that Queen Susan had in the first story. And when he blows it, they come back and he meets Aslan. It's all very cool. But the idea is that part of what Lewis is saying there is that we are living in the age of the Archimelians where Christianity is a myth. It's been expelled from the schools. It's been expelled from culture. And people that believe that are probably not going to be that bad. But that is the direction in which things are trending. And Lewis says, you can't just be a sheep and just watch that happen and not do something about it. So what he proposes is that Christians need to invest in rebuilding an educational framework. And it's interesting. Some of the things he suggests are very, very similar to what was, I think, Christianity Today's top book last year. It's called The Benedict Option. Has anybody heard of that book? I would commend that book to you. It's very interesting. I don't completely agree with that. But there's a lot of very good stuff in it. Basically, the thesis of the book is that our culture is running 150 miles an hour away from a traditional Christian base and that our culture is running away, even if you take Christianity out of it, away from a form of Western civilization that allowed the flourishing of Christianity. And so he says Christians have been trying to invest in saving all of these institutions that were founded as Christian institutions and have just completely gone off the deep end. 
like Harvard, for example. And it's really interesting if you get back and look at the charters and the early work of most of the great universities in the United States, they were evangelical Christian institutions. And what the author of the Benedict Doctrine says is that these institutions are so fundamentally compromised that if you spend all your energy trying to save them, you're never going to be able to make a difference. And he says that we are very in a situation like toward the end of the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire was beginning to fall um, that gave rise to the monastic movement. And what happened in the monastic movement was that communities of Christians withdrew from the culture to band together to protect themselves. But in that area, they deeply reinforced what they believed and practiced radical hospitality to the culture. So they invited the culture in. Um, any of you who've ever been to a monastery know that many of them still practice pretty radical hospitality. A lot of monasteries you can go stay and eat in for free, which is pretty amazing these days. But the idea was that the Christians, the people that were the holders of the true faith, needed to band together in meaningful ways to be able to resist this cultural tide that was sweeping over everything. And it was not that they were just saying, literally, to hell with the rest of the world, but they were banding together to be like um, life-saving stations from which they could reach out in strength and love and radical hospitality. And Lewis's view is not too different from that. Um, but he says an educational framework should be deeply rooted in the Tao. Now, the Tao is Lewis's term, but that's not Eastern religion, it's not Taoism, it's not mindfulness, it's not any of those things. What he means by the Tao is the stream of um, moral understanding that cuts across cultures, that cuts across ages, things like um, unselfishness, uh, bravery, all of those kinds of things. He details in the back of the abolition of man um, a really wonderful study of these common themes. And he says these are things that are, regardless of what religion someone may be practicing, that God put into the human heart when he made man. And those things are still there, but they need to be encouraged. And that you can drive them out of people if you try hard enough. He says the education system needs to be deeply rooted in those things, deeply rooted in things like teaching courage, teaching bravery. That's why it used to be that heroic literature was a major part of the educational system. Heroic literature is gone. It is gone like the dodo. It is uh, impossible to find. So he would say that's very important to bring back very important to train children, not just in reading, writing, and arithmetic, but to train them in these moral values. He would also say it's very important for Christians to be in a place where there is a Christian worldview, to not be in a school where the operating assumption is atheistic, without God is what atheistic literally means. Because if you are in an education system where you're being counted on eight hours a day that there is no God, and all knowledge hangs on that framework, then the, the unspoken implication of that is that if you're a Christian, you're stupid. And you see a lot of that in our culture, particularly in the media, the idea that Christians are stupid. 
and certainly there are stupid um, but their their stupidity does not hang just with one religious thing. So uh, that's another logic flaw. He also is a big believer in the classical classical disciplines: grammar, logic, rhetoric. In the grammar phase, you work very hard on language. Um, you work on reading. You work on memorization. Memorization is largely gone too. It used to be that people memorized reams of material. It still drives me crazy. My mother was an English major at Scott College, and every poem she studied, she was made to memorize. And she still knows all of them. And so she can just like start going and go for like four hours studying poetry. Make me crazy. But grammar, very, very, very important. Contrast that with the whole language movement. Um, don't care about grammar. Don't care about rules. Just sort of write, express yourself. Logic. Logic, for Lewis, this should be taught um, in the middle years, starting probably about age 10 to 13, is when you're teaching logic. And then after that, you want to teach rhetoric, which is argument and debate. We talked before about why debate in particular is so incredibly important. Because in debate, you are assigned to defend and argue a point of view, and it might be one that you disagree with. And if it's a good teacher, they'll make you argue both sides. And what you come to realize through that is that there's truth on both sides of most things, but you have to figure out what the priorities are. And it helps you understand where other people are coming from. Well, that's gone. That is just gone in our culture. Um, instruction in truth, goodness, and beauty. Lewis would not be a big fan of what we think of as modern art. Um, Lewis would believe that Lewis would probably be okay with Picasso, um, but once you get past Cubism and Fauvism, and you get into Paul Clay and people like that, um, Lewis would say that's not art. That may be self-expression, but it's not art. You can argue with him about that if you want to. But truth, goodness, and beauty, that there are things that are true, there are things that are good, and there are things that are beautiful. And we need to be instructed in those. Lewis would love to do something like take students to look at St. Paul's Church and then go over to the Sergeant Jasper and <laughs> explain that there is a difference. One of those is beautiful and one of them is not. And there are reasons for that. There are geometric and design reasons and things and assumptions about what it means to be human that are all part of that architecture. And that's golf. Um, you talk about meaning and purpose that you talk about when you're in class. Why does this matter? What does this have to do with life? What does this have to do with the great stream of what it means to be human in the image of God? Um, he would be a big believer in liberal arts of studying things like uh, literature or history or other cultures or even art or music, all of those kinds of things um, that get left out. Big believer in classics, uh, starting with the Greeks and moving forward. Uh, he was also a huge believer in mentoring and tutorials. Not a big fan of education that was strictly limited to big lectures. Lewis was the greatest lecturer probably in the history of Oxford. His lectures were always standing room only. Virtually every lecture he gave for three decades. But he said where education really happened was in his tutorials. 
And the way Oxford is set up is you have a professor where you have a one-on-one -on -one appointment with that professor week after week after week after week. Can you imagine having to do this as you But he said that's where learning really happens. And then he also is a huge believer in holidays, that you need to be really engaged when you're in this education process, but you need time when you're totally away from it. He would be appalled by all the summer work that schools assign. Because he would say you need a complete break from that, um, to experience nature, to experience beauty, all of what we were talking about when we were contemplating the dog world and the great world and the magnolia, um, all of those things. So, I almost finished on that. Uh, I would encourage you to reflect on these two questions. If you're using this lens and the lens of these quotations that we've talked about tonight, how does your own educational experience look through that lens? And if you are less than satisfied with what your own educational experience has brought you, or even more so if you've fallen prey to a relativistic educational philosophy, how might you educate yourself and you? You're never too old to keep learning. And one of the great things about this is when you, it's kind of like when you go to the doctor and you receive a diagnosis of something, you might have felt fine, but once you get the diagnosis, you realize there's probably some things I need to change. So I hope this maybe has been a little bit of a thought-provoking diagnosis, and you might find some things you want to change as a result. Um, there's some books over there I commend to you. I have not talked about the handouts. The handouts tonight, I think, are just really great. I didn't write them, so I can say that. But um, I think they're pretty easy to get at. And there's one that's just for fun. Um, probably most of y'all had to read 1984 Animal Farm. Um, there's a book review by George Orwell, who wrote those, of Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength. And it's actually pretty funny. It's, um, it's got some good comments in it, but it keeps saying, you know, why does he have to talk about God? <laughs> right, exactly. If you just leave the supernatural out of a science fiction book, <laughs> it, it's really quite amusing. So on that note, uh, let me close this with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the source and the author of all wisdom. We thank you that you are the creator of all that is good and true and beautiful. Lord, we confess we live in a culture that is full of confusion on these matters. And I pray that you would help us to love you with our heart, our soul, and also with our mind. That we would understand what it means to seek after you with our minds as well. And that as we look at these issues in education, that we would choose to exercise our mental muscles a little bit that we would engage with these issues, and that we would be people who are salt and light in the world that is approaching. Lord, we thank you for your servants, yes, Lewis, and for his insights. We pray that you would help all of us this week to follow Jesus more closely. And we pray all of us in this name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here.